All right, we're back for a night's tale. Second time is twice as nice, and we're just going to reuse all the same shit we did last time. I was going to say not? we're going to have the exact same conversation if all goes well. <laughs> so, so let's start how we started before, Mackenzie. This movie, you know, it, it's a classic tale told with modern music, and we also did Marie Antoinette, which is a classic tale told with modern music. So, right. my cold open question for you is. If you had to take a classic tale or a time period piece and set it to modern-ish music, uh, what what time period would you want? And then what kind of music would you go with? Um, so this is hard because I feel like I would make a lot of similar choices, basically. So like I love this genre of music, this era of music in general. I'm a big classic rock girl, like classic rock and jazz. Those are my two faves. So I would still do like something about classic rock juxtaposed against something modern or a a fun historical tale, like modern as in like 19th century modern, you know, like, uh, you know, what would that look like against the jazz age, you know, but like Mm -hmm. a classic rock story or, um, I think that there's a bunch of really interesting periods in our history. Um, I also think that the the black community would love it if you took a jazz piece and just laid white (laughs) rock Americana over top of it. They'd be like, this bitch, she's the worst. Uh, I mean, that's fair. That's fair feedback. I don't know. Uh, But yeah, I think there would be a bunch of them. I'm kind of a nerd about, you know, just history stories. I love the idea of like a Victorian Mm -hmm. classic story being set against classic rock, kind of like Marie Antoinette did, but definitely a different story. So (laughs) can I ask you, like, uh, is there a band that didn't make the cut on a Knight's Tale that you would definitely want in your movie? Is there a classic rock band that you'd be like, oh, they have to be on the soundtrack? Yeah, I mean, there's several. Like, the first one that pops into my head is Yes, uh, which was my first, fun fact, my first, first favorite band. So it was oh. like, this was my very first favorite band. I annoyed the shit out of my entire family by listening to nothing but Yes albums over and over and over for much of my childhood. Um, so I would have to have a good yes song or two in there. Um, but I also it. think there's a bunch of missed opportunities like a Pink Floyd, like a Beatles, like, you know, Ooh, some, some of the greats. Fun. Yeah. Nice. yeah. Well, what about you? choices for me. I think I would skew toward doing revolutionary war, like American revolutionary war, I think is a pretty interesting time period. Like same very, music, very... like classic huh? rock or what? Like same music? Oh, no, no, rock? no. It's okay, going to be well... all new metal, all new metal. <laughs> Like just Limp Biscuit, corn, mostly Limp Biscuit. A little bit of corn, maybe some Linkin Park, but 80% of the soundtrack. Well, it's basically just going to be a Limp Biscuit music video for like 90 minutes to, to 120 minutes if we got the budget, you know? First of all, I feel like that's an incredible choice. But second of Thank all, you. I think, you know, you should do, yeah, like an ABBA musical like they did with Mamma Mia. You know what I mean? Like a Limp Biscuit musical telling of the Revolutionary War. Go. Yeah, people do not give Limp Bizkit enough credit for how deep their songs are. They have songs about Nookie. They have songs about breaking stuff. They have songs about faith. That's like that's three completely different topics right there. I think we got a movie wow. in the works, Mackenzie. Let's greenlight it. The depth. The depth of it. Man, again, we're just breaking new ground on this pod. Every week. Every week. Except every for the weeks where we lose our recording. But never mind. Let's do it. <laughs> oh. Welcome back to We Drink and We Watch Things. I'm Mackenzie. I'm Lamar. And today we are talking a Knight's Tale. Another again. And again, 2.0. A Knight's Tale 2.0. But what is important is another fan jan selection, right? Mm-hmm. So this is from you guys. And uh We, as if you have not heard, have turned January into uh, your recommendation month. So it's it's in honor of you guys, Fan Jan, uh, kicking off this week with A Knight's Tale. And I'm going to ask the question that everyone is afraid to ask, Mackenzie. Is A Knight's Tale a prequel to The Dark Knight? (laughs) Is everyone afraid to ask that? Or are you just afraid to ask that? I think it's the question that America doesn't want to (laughs) touch. (laughs) 
Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, it's super not totally unrelated. Are you I mean... sure? Because it's got the same guy. It's got the word <laughs> night. I understand this one does not have a Batman, but like mm. there's that scene where Shannon Sossaman tells him, hey, you have to lose all these matches. And he's just up on his horse getting the shit kicked out of him. And I just thought that was a piece that was missing from the Dark Knight where the Joker said, you want to know how I got these scars? My wife, she wanted, she put me up on a horse and she told me I had to lose every joust and then I got hit in the face. Like that was not in the movie and I was really disappointed by that, to be honest. Oh my God. I feel like I'm being very vulnerable right now. I mean, your honesty is commendable, Um, but I don't think anyone but you was wondering that. So we're going to move on to what are we drinking, which... I don't know about you. Again, we are all aware this is a 2.0. So (laughs) I did the same thing as my 1.0. Did you do? Okay, cool. So what did you do? So I am trying to get into a little bit of mixology and I am failing stupendously. I tried to remake the same one that I did for Night's Tale the first time and it ended up (laughs) tasting like cough syrup because I changed one thing. So I by no means because I'm making these drinks to try to theme to the movie from here on out. None of you at home have to try and make this because I can't guarantee any of them will taste any good. This one turned out okay though. So it's black rum. DiSorono, some black walnut bitters, and a little bit of triple sec. And nice. what's the movie that we're doing for the second time called? For the second time? A Knight's Tale? Yes. This is a Knight's Cocktail. Is wow. what I'm calling this one. So clever, right? I thought for a second you truly forgot. And I didn't realize you were like <laughs> teeing me up for a pun. I should have known. I should have known. But anyways. Anytime. How well, about you? Yeah. What are you drinking? Yeah, so a couple things. I went a little easy this time. I do I agree. Lamar and I have, have mentioned, I think, way back at the beginning of the pod that we generally wanted to do themed cocktails for you guys. And I got a big old bar, and that's what I was supposed to be doing for Lamar. But life has happened, and sometimes we don't mm-hmm. have time to make a talk- cocktail, and sometimes he's not here. So I, I went with beer this time, but I do think it's super relevant. So the reason being, this is a czech style black lager um okay. and it is from shilling beer company in new hampshire shout out this is my uh my boyfriend used to work there and is from there anyway it's an incredible beer but it is called it's a czech style black lager and they filmed this film in the czech republic so i thought oh, it was okay. fitting okay yeah yeah i thought it was a fitting choice and, and also I, that of course, was just like for cheaper budget like yeah it's way cheaper to film in prague at least it was at the time it was it was super cheap to film in the Czech Republic in general, and uh, mm-hmm. they're mostly in Prague, and it has a lot of like you know the architecture that we see. And anyway, we'll get into that. But generally I speaking, love in yes. Prague. It's like yes and yes and yes and. <laughs> this is going to be such a fun episode because I I got to replace all my old jokes with like, bad puns. You're just I was going to say you're coming in hot with the puns this time. You were not on the pun game the previous time, but I am here for it. Uh, I'm also here for my koozie, which I'm going to just plug every time. Like, how do I put this around a cocktail next time? Because this is I, I need to, an excuse to use this every time. You're going to shatter so many glasses. I'm trying to squeeze them into <laughs> like, a shove it in there. Skylar, <laughs> order me new ones. <laughs> well. All that to say, we've got our drinks, we've got some puns, we are good to go. Uh, So it's time to talk through basics before we give you the spiel about this one, which I am very excited about. I just have to start us off with that. I love this movie and I'm super stoked. So let's get through, let's get through the perfunctory goodness first. So our writer and director is Brian Helgeland. And you would think that having done this twice now, I could ensure that I had pronounced that correctly, but I have not. Was that right? Okay. That was correct. Yes. Perfect. Perfect. So writer director, Brian Helgeland, and he does, you know, some really amazing creative stuff here as far as like, I think Mm -hmm. this is a really cool script. We'll get into a little bit more detail as to why, like all, what all the references are and things like that. But he has taken what could be like a basic action flick and turned it into, I think, a really unique story. So mad props to him on the writing of all of this. I mean, I think he does some incredible work. And I just, but I can't remember off the top of my head. Like, what else has he done again? I think you remember, right? Yeah. So like directing credits, it's not a ton that most people will have heard of. He did do 42, the Jackie 
Jackie Robinson movie That's with right. Chadwick That's Boseman. Right. That's probably the the one that most people have seen. He did the payback movies with Mel Gibson before yeah. we found out that Mel Gibson was terrible. Um, yeah. But mostly he's known for his writing. Like he did mm-hmm. Mystic River. He did LA Confidential. And he did a personal favorite of mine, Man on Fire with Denzel Washington, which That's... is just, just this the epitome of badassery of Denzel playing it so well. And obviously the script is also great. You get a young Dakota Fanning there too, but personal favorite of mine. And he wrote that. I mean, anything with Denzel Washington is like by default incredible. Mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I do love that one. And I actually, I really love 42 as well. I mean, I think people know that one, but I don't know how, you know, widely watched that one was, but I didn't it, it's see it honestly. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I really liked it. I, I thought it was really well done. And that's an early Chadwick Boseman uh, mm-hmm. appearance, rest in peace. That is, it, he does an incredible job. And that's kind of how he, I think one of his, you know, major breakthrough roles sure. really. So it was really <laughs> good, but give it a yeah. watch. Well, so he does great work here yet again. He's got a, he's got a few good known credits under his belt, but this is, I think one of my faves for sure of his, but we'll go ahead and go into the cast and crew, which is incredible this ensemble yeah. is bomb and it's interesting because it's in the early days of some of these folks mm-hmm. uh, they are not all super well known at this point some are, are are definitely known but not necessarily you know hugely famous this is first one heath ledger this is his first like to- independent lead role right he is the headliner of this one yeah and we have him with a mix of some people who are, you know, relatively famous and then others who are, are pretty new to the scene in general. So Heath Ledger to start Mark Addy, who is probably most well known for the full Monty. I, think I want to have this conversation again, because this was so much fun last time <laughs> where I said, well, I know Mark Addy just as King Robert Baratheon in the first couple seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV this series. and. true. Uh, I was like, I've never seen the full Monty because I don't know if I'm in the target market. I didn't know if it's <laughs> if it's unisex um, or if it was primarily aimed at women. Uh, same reason I haven't seen the Magic Mics, but I hear those are great. So it's, I don't know, Mackenzie, should I watch these movies? Yes, you should. Because I will say again, one, the full Monty, I think, is just very funny. Like, it's just okay. a comedy. It's very funny. It is mostly, of course, targeted to women because it's about these men who become male strippers. He's teaser teaser there um but i think what's more fun about it is like i a lot of men who watch it can identify with like how kind of like the secondhand embarrassment but also humor (laughs) of like what this would be like so i've watched it with guys who think it's hilarious uh, first and foremost but magic mike also again like I did not expect to like that movie. I thought that was going to be exactly what it looks like, like a joking film, which is, you know, just an excuse for for us to go see some eye candy, right? But <laughs> there was a better story there than I expected. It was actually pretty good. I'm not going to How lie. much this could be the thing that seals the deal for me watching this? How much actual magic is in the movie? A hundred percent of actual magic okay. tricks. Okay, I am on gold. board. <laughs> rabbits out of hats and Channing Tatum let's go right who doesn't want to see Channing Tatum take his shirt off and dance I think that's like his 100% his target market so yeah you got you got those guys to start us off but then you also have Alan Tudjik or Tudjik Tudjik I can't remember how to say his last name Tudjik I always say Tudjik but you have to say it fast because otherwise it sounds like two dick and that's inappropriate (laughs) so you have to say it really quick Tudjik Really, we just teach y'all up so that we could say two dick, to be honest. But uh, yeah, he plays Watt, who is hilarious. And we will play who? Why. Watt. Who? Okay, I can't with this. You're going to just, you're going to get me every time today. I can feel it. I can feel it. Oh, but he's, he is hilarious. We'll get into why he's so funny. He actually improvs a lot of his lines, which is some of my favorite stuff. Which is, this and this movie. is one of his very, this is what his third or fourth, I think, motion picture. This is, yeah, this is his first like breakthrough motion picture where he's kind of got a big role. He has some, he's had some other supporting roles, definitely, mm-hmm. but he's mostly of Broadway fame. Um, so prior to this, mostly known on Broadway more than, more than, yeah. uh, in films for sure. It's crazy to think about where he went from here of like doing stuff with, you know, Joss Whedon, like being on Firefly, but then getting into voice acting. And he's probably yeah. in every major animated film that you've seen in he the last is, 10 years, right. as well as like he played the robot in Rogue One, Star Wars. So yeah. it's crazy. His career trajectory of going from theater to live action to animated, like he he's killing it. 
I think it makes sense. He's so versatile. You know, he yeah. really is. He's versatile and he's he's able to kind of really adjust to his settings, his surroundings in, in these films. And I think he's always really impressive. And he has played quite a range even a, in a live capacity. If you look at his Broadway work as well, same thing. So not surprising that he's kicking ass. We love him. Uh, <laughs> another one that lots of people love and you will all probably know now, but back then, maybe not as well, is Paul Bettany of Marvel fame, obviously playing Vision, Vision. in Marvel. But here he's one of my faves he plays mr jeffrey chaucer which we will get into why that's awesome in a little bit but he does a real good job and he also i wanted to point out how people sacrificed i mean i'm sure that you know a lot of times we think that actors and the film industry is more glamorous than it probably is but they a lot of people sacrificed a lot for this so paul bettany actually got laryngitis from the amount that he had to just yell publicly in this thing that's his whole gig and yep. the director brian helgeland actually lost his two front teeth while sort of demoing a stunt with Heath Ledger, they were doing like a jousting thing and the thing just hit him in the face and he lost his two front teeth. People are sacrificing all over the place for this movie. <laughs> well, I think for for Jeff, a.k.a. Paul Bettany, uh, you know, some voice teacher somewhere is telling him, yell from your diaphragm, kid, because you can hear it in this film. You can hear him <laughs> screaming and it Shredding hurts. Shredding his vocal cords. It yeah. hurts to listen to, for sure. Yeah. So we have Paul Bettany. We also have Shannon Sossaman of at least the pod fame. Because of my man, heart. Oh, Shannon <laughs> Sossaman, straight from my heart. How many New times Jersey. have we talked about Shannon Sossaman and her lip biting on this podcast that, already? Oh, she does it like three times in this movie. That just that every time when I was like 16, 17 years old. So adorable. Okay. She I'll does. Stop. She does do it a lot. It's fine. Janelle, don't listen to this one. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so no, I, I she does a really good job here. She This is the one that I thought made, was going to like make her famous. You know what I mean? That was going to be like kind of her launch pad. She's definitely yeah. done some other stuff, but she didn't kind of blow up the way that i thought to be honest um she doesn't do a ton after this that's very big you know yeah she unfortunately it seems like was one of those actresses it's not fair in any capacity but it just seems like there's a different standard for actresses versus actors of how mm -hmm. long your shelf life is and your, mm -hmm. your 15 minutes of fame and it just seems like a lot of these actresses they're in everything for two to three years and then they and sort then they of vanish. just you know they'll be in a film every couple years i do want to say on the positive side of things i like that her character of jocelyn is living her best life, like every day is the fucking Kentucky Derby with her hats and her hair. It yes. looks like she's always going out to the races. And I guess there are she, horses here, so it works. She looks incredible every single moment. And she does such fun, creative shit. Like that's the best part is like, again, mm -hmm. this is a thing that does is not does not fit the, you know, 14th century, which is when this is set. But she has like cool hair dye. She's got purple hair one time. She's got streaks mm -hmm. in her hair another time. She's got these awesome outfits, some of which are kind of skimpy for the period. Right. But they're so cool looking. And they're yeah, to your point, they look like she's going to the Kentucky Derby. She, it's cohesive. She's <laughs> got hats and accessories and all that. Anyway, yes, she's so fun literally just to watch in this film. She looks great a hundred percent of the time. So she's awesome. Another, another woman we have joining the cast here that we love is Laura Frazier playing Kate, who mm -hmm. is the widowed blacksmith, bad bitch, um, makes the armor. <laughs> we love her. She's cute and she's funny and she's got green hair too, which I think yeah. is cool. And I love how she sort of rounds out this group of misfits. Mm. I, I think for its time when this was made, they could have just made it a boys movie, you know, like the guys. Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. But I think that adds to this film overall, just does a very good job of playing to both, you know, I'm not speaking in extremes of like male, female, but it's like, it's got stuff that guys would like. It's got stuff that girls would like. It's yeah. got stuff that anybody would like. And I think yeah. that having that character as sort of part of the Scooby gang definitely adds to that. A hundred percent. I think it's a very accessible movie, partially because of that, right? Because it's mm -hmm. not, it's also not just a Jocelyn, right? Who is a truly very feminine character and actress in this particular film. Kate is a woman, but she's also one of the boys, which is, you know, yeah. not something that all, again, that's very controversial to say these days, but it just like in this context just means she's one of them, right? She just hangs yeah. and she gets along with them and she loves it. And she is that girl who loves, you know, to get her hands dirty and get in the nitty gritty. And, and again, she's a blacksmith, but she can still be a, a, a woman. And she even has a line about that later where he's like, are you a blacksmith or a woman? And she's like, sometimes I'm both. And that's, I think the embodiment of her character. That's why she is so enjoyable. 
Yeah, I like that they give her some moments where, yes, she gives a, a female perspective on when mm -hmm. they're writing the poem and whatnot, and she gets yeah. to chime in, and she's sort of telling them, like, no, don't think this way, mm -hmm. you know, present it this way. This is what show. They never, despite her being sort of tomboyish, for lack of a better term, they never completely take away, like, who she is as a person, which I kind of dig. Right. They don't. They don't take her, uh, who away her, you know, femininity or any of those mm -hmm. aspects either, for sure. So another one we have is James Purifoy, who plays Prince Edward, the Black Prince. And he's uh, incredible in this role, even though he has very few appearances. He's a really cool addition, to, I think, to the story repeatedly. And he kind of brings brings it home in a lot of ways so that we'll talk through in just a second. And then one that I had to include for almost nostalgic reasons for me is you have Nick Brimble and he plays, he's not super well-known, but he plays Sir Ector in this one. So the knight uh, that, that William learns from, that Will learns from early on as a kid. And he is from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves fame back in oh, the 90s. Oh, okay. Yeah. That makes sense. He was play he played Little John, who's like a really cool character in that in that story, in that story, but also in that version of the film. And anyway, he's great. We love him. But rounding us out is Rufus Sewell, who plays Count Adamar, the asshole. And he boy just does has this a guy, hateable face. Hateable he does. face. He has such a hateable face, and I feel for him because I'm sure like he must be a lovely man. He keeps getting jobs, right? So people like to work with him to some degree. Uh, but man, he has such a hateable face. He's such an annoying character. And uh, and yeah, he does a really good job of playing a, you know, misogynistic, egotistical asshole. Mm -hmm. He's mm -hmm. pretty terrible. So, I mean, I guess in that sense, he's great because that's what his job is here. <laughs> Yeah. It's a, the Joffrey Baratheon effect of you are so good at being an actor that people want to fucking kill you. They're like, I want that kid to die. To die. It's, yeah. Yeah. You know, fun fact while we're on that, you know, he briefly, well, for actually quite a while, retired from acting because of that role, because of the vitriol he received yes. as Joffrey ba Baratheon. He I only recently was in a anything. He just was a, in sex education as a very minor character. Totally opposite character, by the way. So go check it out. He's kind of funny in that. Okay, very cool. Very cool. So before we jump into the actual story, and I know we're going to move through it a little quicker than we did last time, just for the sake of time. But listen, y'all, you may not have done this before, but we have. So there's only so much we can give. <laughs> Before we get into the story, I want to touch back on what we we mentioned in the intro, because one thing I think we didn't do justice in our first recording was how pivotal the music in this plays out. So speak to, I suppose, why do you think that this is one of the first films I remember doing this, you know, taking this scenario from like long, long ago. And we know this isn't a true story necessarily, but mm -hmm. scoring it with modern music. And I think it's sort of revolutionary, honestly. And also second question, part B here is what is your favorite use of music in this film? Okay. Well, that's super easy for me. I'll start there, which is my favorite song in this whole thing is Thin Lizzie's The Boys Are Back in Town. Like so that perfect. is the moment that yeah. is the moment in this movie. It's so it it's one. It's a great fun song. Like I just, I literally got in a fight with Skylar the other day cause he skipped it in the car and I was like, <laughs> we do not skip this song. Uh, so I just love this song, but also I, it's so fitting in this scene. You know, they yeah. are literally the boys are back in town. They mm -hmm. haven't been home to London in, in some cases, a dozen years, five yeah. years, three years, whatever it is. And so it's, it really is like this beautiful welcome home for them, but they also are coming in with this swagger that totally yeah. vibes with this song of like, we are bad motherfuckers. We have been winning everything. We're coming home. This is our, this is our glory ride home. And it's, yeah, it's such a vibe. It's the best one in this film, I think. Very cool. But yeah, I think uh, this film in general, to your point is one of the first or definitely major ones, I think to do this in this way. And to that point, I think it might have been a little ahead of its time in that way. Like, I remember it being something that people saw, but I don't remember it being like a blockbuster, you know, when it came out. Yeah. I do remember going to see it in theaters and I really enjoyed it. And, you know, my family loved it. A few of my friends loved it. But it was by no means something that was ubiquitous, like everyone had seen. And and I don't know, I mean, I don't know if you remember that experience yourself, but for me, it was like, it didn't feel like everybody knew this film until pretty recently. 
No, I, I don't know about like pretty recently, but I didn't see the thing until at least five years after it came out, maybe 10, because again, right. I just saw the trailers. I don't remember the trailer even representing the fact that it was this cool sort of hip version of, right. I just saw a jousting movie, right? I was like, I don't really right. give a shit about jousting. So why am I going to go see this? Uh, but I think I watched it in like the late aughts, maybe. Yeah. And I think I should say recently is all relative, right? Like I think in the age of streaming and it becoming more available places is when you started to see it more. But yeah, when it came out, not as much. And I think part of that is, and I could be wrong, so nobody hold me to this, but I feel like I remember back then watching trailers for it before I went and saw it, that it looked to your point, just like a jousting movie. And like it had traditional music set to the trailer. Like mm-hmm. it looked like kind of just an, a period piece, just an action period piece. Yeah. And it didn't have kind of, if I recall correctly, the trailer didn't have some of that fun music, that fun energy of this mm-hmm. is like a play on this story. And so I don't know that it resonated with people for that reason. They probably saw this and were like, I don't really want to go watch this period jousting movie. And that's like not the vibe of this movie at all. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And But I will add that, I guess, first of all, it's my fault for asking a two-part question, but I want to backtrack and say yes. my favorite use of music in this is the David Bowie at sort of the dance scene. The golden years, yeah. Yeah, golden years, because it builds. They sort of start <laughs> the dance a little solemnly, and then the music slowly picks up. It's like the traditional up. music. Yeah, and they work their way into it, and eventually the beat drops, and the actual song comes on. So yes. I really love that use of it. But uh, I also wanted to point out that, like, This is, we talked about during Bring It On, how you can, if you have a great plot and a great script and a great cast, you can make an awesome movie about pretty much anything. Bring It On is the quintessential cheerleading film. And I think that this is the quintessential jousting film. Like a lot of people, like I know what people are going to say. They're going to say, Lamar, what about the 1995 Robin Williams movie Jumanji? And I'm (laughs) sorry, but you're wrong. It's not. There's no jousting in that. There is jousting in this. So as far as I'm concerned, this is number one. Jumanji's number two. <laughs> now I feel like we have to do Jumanji. Okay, guys, after Fan Jam, we'll come back to Jumanji and talk about that, which actually I do have a lot of strong feelings about. So so we definitely should. Anyway, um, but yeah, I totally agree that that this is that's such a great scene, the golden year scene, for sure. I think that's a really good use of, of the music. And I again, I like that it's the traditional leading into the modern. And like you said, the dance changes, the vibe changes. And the best part of that is that Count Adamar is pissed and he's he leaves because he's trying to, in that scene, he's trying to embarrass Will and make him look mm-hmm. like an idiot. And it just does not work out in his favor. And that's, again, the best part. Can we ask, I, I feel like we're going to jump around the plot a lot today and I'm fine with that because that's how my brain works anyway. But why does Count Adamar have such a hard on for Will that he is? Why does he give a shit? Like Will's never seen battle. He's not tested yeah. as Adamar is. Adamar is literally out killing people on the battlefield for part of this film. Right. So why does he give a shit about winning a fake fighting competition as opposed to what he's actually getting paid to do as a mercenary? I, I don't get it. Y- yeah, well, I think that you kind of just answered your own question there a little bit, but I, I think it's a two part thing, right? It's partially that. It's partially that he is a mercenary, not a real soldier in that sense, right? He's a paid mercenary. So it's not like he's operating in some sort of heroic method in service of the crown in your traditional mm. sense, right? It's not like his majesty's army or whatever. He's a mercenary. This is his business. And it, this is a, the, the free companies were a mercenary company that was actually very well known for being kind of terrible. And they eventually, and they actually allude to it in this film, they eventually disband them because they are, they were known for raping, pillaging, torching towns, like, and just raising towns to the ground that were not essentially in their remit to do. So he is definitely a mercenary, but he's also just kind of evil. Like he doesn't care how his soldiers behave. He doesn't care that they're doing something wrong. He even makes an allusion to it when he comes back and they're literally talking shit about him. And he's like committing the oldest of sins and the newest of ways. And he's like fucking proud of it, you know? Mm. So one, he's a fucking creep. Two, I think he also, it doesn't, none of that matters. This is yes, fake jousting and a fake you know, trophy and all this shit, but it is a status symbol. 
And the point is for him, it's a hierarchical status symbol and he should be at the top because he's the wealthiest or he's the most successful or he's the guy with the smallest dick and he's got a lot more to prove. I don't know. <laughs> but I think it's, again, it's more of a status thing than anything else. And it's this entitlement to you're this poor country knight. As far as he can tell, especially when they first meet, Will is this poorer knight. Yes, he's a knight, but he's poorer. He's obviously doesn't mm -hmm. have the same access or title in the same way. Again, a count and a knight are very different, right? A count and a sir are really different in the caste mm -hmm. system here. So he feels superior. And in what world should he lose? Right. And it is, it's a great allusion to another, another really great film, but also a book, The Count of Monte Cristo, where they are best friends. They have this big falling out. And he says, because in what world should I want to be you? Right. Uh -huh. I'm, I'm the superior guy. And in, in this world, I am not supposed to want to be you. So I think that's what Adamar's battling this whole time. I'm going to save that line in case I ever have a fight with my best friend or my brother. <laughs> you know, that's really fucking hurtful. I don't it know if is. I remember that line, but uh, I was going to say, <laughs> I wonder also if Jocelyn weren't a factor in this, if he would be as hard up about it, because I think that part of it, maybe it's also him being a mercenary of feeling like he's owed something or mm -hmm. by winning this, he should be able to pick any lady that he wants. Maybe that's part of it as well. But I just, I can't forget the scene where he's literally at war you know, yeah. he's out there in the in the barracks or whatever you want to call it. And he's fighting for his life every day. But they hand him the tournament papers of yeah. who's winning. And he's like, yeah, this guy's winning all the fake <laughs> fights. And he's just so mad. But he's like, stabs the paper. I'm like, what the fuck, Adam? I like, focus on what's important. But I love that scene, too, because it's so funny. I made Skylar rewatch this with me when we did this. And he said the exact same thing. He was like, why is he paying attention to this in the middle of battle? And I was like, right. if you think our soldiers overseas are not checking football scores, you are wrong, <laughs> right? Like, they care about these fake fights just as much as the others. But the other thing I think, honestly, is this is insert dude here, right? This is a dick measuring yeah. composition, right? It doesn't matter if it's Will. It's going to be somebody else. Whoever is the other threat the best threat on the field i think becomes adamar's nemesis regardless of who it is okay all right well i'm glad we got past that asshole i want to backtrack to sort of the beginning of the story because one thing that mm -hmm. i want to shout out at the beginning is i love that it throws you directly into what the conflict and the story of this is yeah. going to be and we get the music piece with queen you know you mm -hmm. see the crowd mm -hmm. there and it just throws you right into this universe i also love that as soon as the movie starts the guy, the knight that Will is going to be replacing has already died and shit his pants. He's so literally like dead. ready to go. You are in the thick of it from <laughs> minute one, for sure. And it's hilarious from minute one. I think that's the other thing to really call out here is it's so funny from the first yeah. moment. And Watts over there trying to fucking kick Serector's armor like, hey, wake up, wake <laughs> up. And he's literally dead, guys. He's dead. Um, but yeah, I love that you're in the thick of it. And they're standing there trying to figure out what to do. And, you know, they, they say it right there at the beginning, like the landscape is food, right? They are all mm -hmm. starving. They haven't mm -hmm. eaten in three days. They need Surrector to win this joust or they're not going to eat, right? And they don't have another method, at least at this moment, to make money and get food and blah, blah, blah. And so this is a critical juncture for them. And that's where Will decides it seemingly just in this moment and temporarily to pretend to be Sir Ector and yeah. go joust because all he has to do is not what, Lamar? <laughs> not get knocked off the horse. Don't fall off the horse and that's it. <laughs> we win, which doesn't feel like a big ask, right? So right. so they commit and they do it, but it, even that whole interaction is hilarious. You've got like Heath Ledger with his messy ass dreads and they're <laughs> stuffing him into this armor that doesn't fit. And, yeah. and thank God he doesn't fall off the horse because they win. But also extra thank God that the shield gets hammered to his head as a result because then he, then he can't has, take off yeah. his helmet and like show who he is. Cause I, I have wondered what they were going to do if that uh -huh. didn't happen. Like, were you just not going to take his helmet off? I don't know, but it works I out also, great. I really like how when he doesn't get knocked off the horse, but he gets fucking railed by this. He gets you know, rammed. Yeah. And like he is basically dead on his feet, but he's on the yeah. horse and they're just celebrating <laughs> like, oh, we didn't lose. I we know. didn't lose because he didn't fall. But meanwhile, he's probably got a concussion. This is before concussions were. A oh, thing, yeah, but, for sure. He's yeah. got a concussion. <laughs> and he's like, don't get so excited, you know, and he's like, but they're like, w 
this is his first moment where he has, quote, won one of these things. It's not supposed to be first director for sure. And they say that again later when he breaks a lance, you know, he breaks a lance yeah. on somebody and they're like, director's broken, broken thousands of lances. And he's like, I haven't. This is awesome. So, I mean, it's a huge moment. And I think the good and bad of it is this is the moment he realizes he can get away with this. And it shifts the whole story from there. And it's, and it's really cool because they get they get their prize. They get their money. Everyone else wants to go home to England and just buy some fucking, you know, fancy cakes and peppermint cream, says Watt. Well, because the dream of a full stomach can come true. I like that Watt just aims low. He's yeah. like, I could I could be eating right now. Yeah. Right. Dream He's big, like, kids. Food is possible. I can't change my stars. I don't know what kind right. of nonsense you're talking about. But I can, in fact eat today uh and i think that's a cool moment for them where you see their camaraderie right away right then even in that early scene that dynamic of you know they love each other like they're literally fighting and this and will is trying to literally take their money to go outfit himself to joust and do all this shit and they're fighting over it but ultimately they trust him and they love him and they will do what he asks and i think this is actually something that uh lends itself to going back to the production of this film which mm -hmm. is they really kind of had built this dynamic among the cast in this really truly organic way so i, I said at the top we, they shot in prague you know and prague is so cheap to shoot in that heath ledger had to be there a little bit earlier with the director brian and the other folks didn't have nearly as much to do but it was so cheap that Brian calls everybody out and is like, come fucking hang, man. Like, just hang with us while we do all our prep. And they did. They had like an afternoon of prep, the other guys. And then the rest of the time, they're just hanging out with Heath and the rest of the crew and they're bonding. And they were literally going out drinking and hanging out and getting to know each other for weeks at a time. And I think that dynamic of this band of misfits who really are close and good friends and love each other comes through the whole film. And I think that had a lot to do with it, right? Like, they literally just hung out in the Czech Republic and had some drinks and got to know each other and became like real friends. Yeah. I would imagine that this would be a really fun set to be on. So, so that, that tracks for me, how much this is changing the conversation a little bit. You mentioned Heath's dreadlocks and his long beard at the beginning of this throughout this movie. I asked myself a few times, how much of Chris Hemsworth Thor character was based on Heath Ledger in A Knight's Tale. Because he's got, you know, when we see Fat yeah. Thor eventually, spoiler, he's got the dreads, he's got the long beard, but we also like his lovable idiocy at times. Mm -hmm. You know, when Will is trying to talk to Jocelyn and says, your throat, your throat is above your breasts. Like that, the way he delivers that is so Chris Hemsworth as Thor, just this lovable idiot. Well, it's funny you say that because they are both Australian dudes who are you know be slowly became I famous actors it. and yeah i don't know and maybe it's that australian hu humor maybe uh -huh. it's that uh hemsworth admired heath ledger and had seen him because obviously heath ledger was famous quite a bit before chris hemsworth but yeah i wouldn't be surprised if this was like a, a vibe that they were trying to emulate this was again this was not like a, a, a blockbuster i don't think a lot of people would elude that but i think that's a good i think that's a good catch they do have a similar energy also fat thor weirded me out so hard <laughs> such a weird vibe just while we're on it <laughs> um, speaking of jocelyn though i want to say we gotta out, talk about her yeah i want to call out that one of my very first notes as i was watching this was will falls in love with girl with stupidest hat because she has that oh dumbass God. white bonnet without straight i don't know what it's supposed to be but it's she... not doing her any favors well, okay, so this is where I'll nerd a little for on behalf of, of the people of this go. time. Uh, well, one, I totally agree with you, though. Like They're not offended. They're not around anymore. <laughs> you don't need the, to speak on their behalf. I'm not. I didn't, I didn't say they would be offended. I'm just here to help. You know what I mean? I'm just here to help the people of the past. But Fair. anyway, I agree with you, number one, that it is the worst outfit she wears in the whole movie. Okay? Yeah. Like, bar none. She looks the least flattering here like the her hair is completely up in a bonnet and i think one of her assets in this film and as a person yes. is her hair and they don't show it off uh and she's supposed to be like this venus he even says that later you know this venus this goddess to him and i just feel like at a first glance if that really was your first interaction with her 
would that really be your takeaway? It's just not the most <laughs> flattering. I, I, I would totally agree. But secondarily, hat-wise, bonnet-wise, whatever, you do see that kind of hat on women a lot in this time period. And it is not mm-hmm. flattering. Oftentimes, it covers your ears. Any, like, take a picture of any picture of Anne Boleyn, this is the hat that she's wearing. Like, I think most people have seen some picture of Anne Boleyn in a movie, in a film, or in a piece of art somewhere at some point. Anne Boleyn, the beheaded wife of King Henry VIII, she is wearing this hat, right? And it is a recurring style at the time. And no, it is not flattering. It's not flattering on anybody. It's a bonnet with sideburns is what it it's is. A, it is. It is. That's an excellent description. It is Thank a bonnet you. with sideburns and it doesn't look good on anyone. I would hate to wear it. My <laughs> my hair is the only thing I got going for me. You know what I mean? <laughs> you stop. You stop fishing for compliments on this podcast. All He's right. like, because I'm not going to get not my style. <laughs> uh, but Jocelyn, okay. So they we have to talk about their first interaction though. I got to say, because... You know, he has literally only seen her. He's seen her for two seconds and he's just fucking infatuated. And I think that's my question to you is, should he legitimately be infatuated with her in point two seconds? Like what is, she hasn't Again, said anything. Not that in that hat. That's what I don't understand the directing <laughs> here of, oh yeah, here's your outfit for today, Miss Sossaman. This is when he falls in love with you for the first time. And really? Like if I were yeah. her, I would have had I would have had notes, honestly. So I don't probably know. went to I the mean, costume designer and was like, "Are we sure he's in love with me, or I'm going to a nunnery? Like, what's happening?" I, I think that there was just and you're more into cinema than I am, and you could speak more to history. But I think that we've maybe we've wisened up in the last couple decades of what constitutes. You know, we won't buy into just a traditional meat cute anymore unless it's a Hallmark movie, basically yeah. that crowd. But the rest of us, I think, we require a little more subtlety and storytelling to see people fall yeah. in love, and this is just from a time before that existed where it's just like yep we'll buy into that fuck it i, I mean i yeah because i do remember like in retrospect just the nostalgia of this film and like thinking about watching it the first time i don't think i questioned that at all you know yeah. what i mean i mean i do remember feeling like this isn't her best look for sure but i don't feel like he didn't fall in love with her right but mm-hmm. i do think it's fun that he goes into the church and follows her and he gets screamed at you know you desecrate the house of god and it's incredible and hilarious. And it's a beautiful echo, actually. It sounds incredible. But yeah, it's kind of begins his pursuit of her and trying to understand and find out who she is. And he, spoiler alert, does eventually find out. She does eventually really think that he's the one. She has no interest, by the way, in Count Adamar. But it, it has to be said. Yeah. She has a lot of fun fucking with everyone yeah. around her. She she does like she likes to kind of have the witty repartee with Count Adamar because she's mm-hmm. like I think she loves that he doesn't want to hear her speak because she even says that later. She's like, Adamar wants his women silent and she like forces him to listen to her. And I think that's her exerting some sort of power at this time where a lot of women don't have much power. And so I think she has fun with that. But she is a character. It can't be overlooked that she has a lot of autonomy, a lot of freedom for a woman of this period. And it, frankly makes no sense right like historically speaking would not happen right she's traveling all over she's going to all these jousts unchaperoned other than with her lady in waiting she's speaking unchaperoned with adamar even there would always be somebody there and and same thing with will and and so on and so forth so she's actually a really empowering interesting character in that way like she has a lot of freedom here so ladies if you ever make a time machine don't go back to don't go to the thinking it's going to be this Mm-mm. fun you will not have a great time no do you think Mm-mm. this there was a moment that stood out to me and we didn't talk about this last time but when she's talking to Adamar, and I think she's watching, I don't know if Will is down there jousting at that point, but they're watching the joust and he's sitting up there and she basically asks him to mansplain the sporter. Is she just fucking with him there or is that legitimately her being curious about it? No, there's a couple motions that she makes and they're kind of mannerisms that tell me personally that she genuinely doesn't know the answer. Okay. Right. Like, I think she genuinely is like, Hey, explain this to me. But what I like about it is that once she knows it, she gets enraptured. Right. Like, I think it's the same thing with, you know, as soon as you get into a new sport, any sport, if you get into football, for example, and you didn't know all of a sudden it is so much more interesting to watch. Right. And, and so she has that moment, I think with jousting where she genuinely hasn't cared about this up to this point. And he does explain to her a couple of key things. And she's like, Oh, Okay, I get it now. 
you know? Okay. So it's kind of like what the first time you hear Dave Matthews band and then you follow them around show to show city to city. Like that's what, cause that's what she ends up doing is just all these people are like fish or Dave Matthews fans going all around the country with these, these guys that are jousting. I mean, I'd go grateful dead, but yes, literally exactly the same thing mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. for sure. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's it, it again. I think it speaks to her freedom as a character in all seriousness, like that she gets mm -hmm. to do that. She mm -hmm. has this ability to do that, but we got to, so Jocelyn's a huge character that we love, but we got to, I, I can't let this pass. We got to talk about Chaucer and, and really mm -hmm. the whole misfit band of misfits are all incredible, but I think Chaucer is so important because really this is kind of a loose framework of this film. So when I talk about Brian Helgeland doing a really creative thing with the writing of this screenplay, this is kind of what I'm talking about. And, and this is where, you know, we get to nerd out about it. This is somewhat not, not exact framework, but this is somewhat loosely inspired by the Canterbury tales and Jeffrey mm -hmm. Chaucer, right? Mm -hmm. So those of you who don't know, Jeffrey Chaucer was a, an incredible writer in this period. He wrote again, the Canterbury tales, but among, he wrote other things as well. And at this time he's like, the one show in town. You know what I mean? It's him and the Gutenberg Bible, right? Like there's not a lot else out as far as what is published works. So I love that when we first meet him, he's trudging through, he is naked AF and you don't really know why, but he is like, he's not like, he's not, he doesn't look diminished in any way. He is confidently, it's, this is just my life. This is just my life. He's just walking forward naked AF and just like, listen, this is who I am. Like as a person, it's fine. And he has this incredible interaction with them right away. I love he, how he introduces himself. Lilium Interspeedless, the Lily Among the Thorns. Jeffrey Chaucer's the name, writing's the game. And then he tries to explain that he wrote this work, The Book of the Duchess. And he's like waiting for the fangirling <laughs> to start to happen from them. But they don't read like they don't know any of this. So they're just like blank. What? Like, what do you, what do you mean? And he's like, okay, well, you know, it was allegorical. They don't know what that means. They don't get any of this entire conversation. And it's my favorite part about it. Cause he's just, he's just talk. These are not his people, right? Like this is not his audience and it's hilarious. Yeah. The crossover between this mm -hmm. and the actual Canterbury tales is quite interesting when, you mm -hmm. know, I, I am not I am not smart enough to know all these things, but I did, I, I got Google going for me. So uh, it was interesting to find out that you know this there was a year where historians can't really trace where Chaucer was at that given time, and that's where this film is set. Is hey, what if he went on sort of this this, yeah. this gambling thing and he became a nudist? No, that's not real. It's just one scene. But <laughs> what if he you know went on this bad run, but then joined up with this knight, and that's what inspired the Canterbury Tales? Wouldn't that be cool? So that's sort of yeah. the basis for this, and actually. Actually, it ties into the Canterbury Tales because if you've read that, the very first story in that is called The Knight's Tale. So there you right. go. Well, and it's also it, it is in potentially loosely based off a real knight of this period and like mm. his his situation of jousting. And historically, this time something to understand is like he says it something in this movie that I think alludes to it a lot, where it's basically uh, talking about how how did the nobles become noble anyway? They took it with the tip of a sword. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'll do it with a lance. Right. And this is very true at this time. Like knighthood is changing. Royalty is changing. Nobility is changing. People are being awarded lands and knighthoods because of loyalty rather than birth. Right. So this is actually very true of this period that that changes quite quickly. And so there is actually an earl of this time. I can't remember his name, who this is potentially loosely based off how he became noble in this period as well. So there's a lot, I just think it's such a cool framework for, yeah. What is, what was Chaucer up to for this weird year of his life? And he was unusually well-tracked again. He was famous. Like a lot of people, there's a lot of things happening to people at this period that nobody have, nobody has any idea what's going on, but for his, his time period, he was very famous. So it is weird that he like fell off the face of the map for a year. And I think it's such a cool idea that this is what he was doing. He was being a herald for a random knight who's actually not even really a knight. And he does <laughs> such a great job of it. All the yeah. SAT words. Yeah. And I like that it, uh, it's, you know, he's not the main character of this. They could have said, oh, we're going to make a movie about Chaucer in this time. But he's, you know, he's one of the, the main he's cast. A supporting but he's, cast. It's not, the focus is not on him the whole movie. 100%. 
And I like that he he does get these vignettes, though, that are very much about him. Like, he has this gambling problem, as we know. It's how he loses his clothes. It's how he gets indebted to William. And he immediately falls back into it when they get, you know, to ruin at the the joust at ruin. And he loses his clothes again and all this stuff. And so, (laughs) but the people there who are holding him hostage and expecting this money from Will are two characters in the Canterbury Tales. And they're two of the most hated characters in the Canterbury Tales. And if you don't know that story, it's essentially a group of, you know, kind of misfits traveling to um, a cathedral in Canterbury. And they're they're trying to go reach a relic. And I won't get into all of that. But anyway, they're traveling together. And this, the Canterbury Tales are them telling one another stories. They're all telling a story mm-hmm. on these travels. And two of the folks who do this are the summoner. And in this film, Simon the summoner. And the partner, which is Peter, the partner. And those are the two people who are holding Chaucer hostage and expecting him to pay these gambling debts. And they so fit the character <laughs> from Canterbury Tales. And I love jo- Chaucer's line to them where he's like, I will eviscerate you in fiction. I was naked for a day, but you will be naked for eternity. And it's true. We still read this book to this day and they are terrible, yeah. horrible characters and you hate them. So I just, I, I had to go on about that. I love that so much. Yeah, I, I love it when you nerd out. I'm on board. Let me nerd out. Have you ever okay. heard of Nike shoes? Nike, the <laughs> sneaker company? Because that's what I know. So Yes, hit me. <laughs> so in this, we get the very blatant pl- product placement of the Nike swoosh Nike. logo there on the armor. And did you know yeah. what Nike's founder's name is? Uh, no, I don't know the founder. I know the goddess Nike, but what what about the, the shoe company? Go ahead. Well, the founder's name is Phil Knight. So it's all coming full circle here today, <laughs> oh my is what God. I'm saying. That yeah. is so poetic. Well, right? and again, Nike, so, uh, and I think this is also probably a very intentional use of this. Nike was a goddess of victory. So, uh, you know, he, he does eventually slam dunks. Yeah, and slam dunks. Obviously, victory equals slam dunks. Like those are the same, right? So, uh, can I but we gotta... ask you? Go can I ask you, as someone I know that you really, really love this movie? Can I be a little critical and ask you a question really quick? I mean, you can ask me a question. I didn't say you could be critical, but you know, whatever. <laughs> it's like don't get mad. I know you're going to get mad. Did this movie need to be? two hours and 12 minutes long to tell the story that it tells. Cause that's one of the things, one of the on rewatch things that I struggle with a night's tale is I just think it's a little too long. Okay. Uh, well, it's okay to be wrong. You know, uh, everybody <laughs> is sometimes in this case, today's your day. Uh, no, I think it's great. I don't, I, I don't, I honestly, I was thinking about this when we talked about this, I don't feel like it drags for me. I mean, I think that's the thing. Like, of course, it does any movie have to be two and a half hours long or two hours and 12 minutes or whatever. It really, it all depends on how you feel while you're watching it, I think, generally speaking. And I didn't feel like it dragged. I guess my question back to you would be, where do you feel like they had opportunity to cut? You know, where where should they have let some of it go? Up until I think the last flashback or when the flashbacks all tie into modern day, they made a lot more sense to me. But while watching, I was just like, I don't understand why this is some of the scenes were there and they did go on a little long. There's a couple scenes, the the very first scene where they meet in the church, I think drags a little bit when he walks the horse in there. And then there's another scene when it's pretty hard to get a horse back out of a church. Like, I don't know what to tell you. It's going to take a minute. Can I finish? (laughs) God, what is this Fox news? So you asked me a question. (laughs) Yeah. The other one was going to be the other church scene where after Will writes her the poem and he goes in and she's trying to call him out on it and Mm -hmm. say these beautiful things that you said in this letter that you wrote me. That scene is just for what they're trying to convey there. It is really long. And then there's one other one, which is when they're telling him to run when he gets found out. Yes, not being who he says he is. And it's they're all telling him to run for fucking like 15 minutes. So it's just like, okay, we get it. He needs to run. He doesn't want to run, but it just, it goes on and on and on. 
Okay, I addressed the horse one already. My apologies for interrupting. <laughs> I apologize uh, for the horse one. That I was in the wrong. False. False. Okay, but two, <laughs> number two, the cathedral one. I guess I can I'm, again, I'm trying to like kind of piece this together. I feel like maybe that was a little long, but there's some key moments there that I love. And that's why maybe that's why I love that scene and I overlook that because I love where the deacon or, you know, one of the church church people comes over and yells at her and shushes her. And mm-hmm. they're fighting. They're fi- fighting loudly as we know but he shushes her and she just calls him the fuck out she's like do not mm-hmm. shush me and spare him be gone go and she yells at him and i fucking love it because it's deserved um so maybe that's why i don't notice that as much but i do think it's where she throws down this really important challenge from a plot perspective of she's like mm-hmm. you have to lose to prove your love and i agree with her like all this all these other knights and and people and him included offering to win the the tournament in mm-hmm. her name is bullshit right it's not for her it's just a cherry on top that he they get to say that and maybe they get credit for her or whatever it's yeah. not i don't i don't think it's a value to her and it's not for her so i agree with the crux of the scene which is why maybe I think it doesn't bother me. Now, that being said, the third one, the run scene that you mentioned, I agree. That does go on a little long. And I think the reason that goes on a little long for me personally is logistically, how realistic is this? They're like Mm -hmm. out in the open having this chat and they're talking about how they're coming to get him and they're going to arrest him and all this shit. And it's like, there's no way that somebody hasn't found them by now, you know, because you're right. This conversation is going on for a while Prior to her walking up, they had no reason to be in hiding. They weren't like tucked away somewhere. To our knowledge, they're in a perfectly normal area to just get ready for this event. And no one has found them yet, but they're actively looking for him to arrest him. It just felt yeah. it felt improbable that they were not found during that conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, agree to disagree. It's we don't have to there doesn't have to be a right or a wrong, but you're going to think I'm wrong no matter what. Let's get to something that we agree on, which is the scene where they write the poem itself and what we just spoke yeah. about of we, he's yeah. he's getting his buddies to ghostwrite a poem. And this is long before hip hop, everybody. This is at least a hundred <laughs> years before hip hop existed. So, you know, back then this is what ghostwriting looks like. Yeah. No, I love this scene. I agree. And yes, we have had this conversation before, but I will just reiterate. This is, I think this is beautiful. I think he also side note doesn't get enough credit from jocelyn in that other scene for being poetic because he's not ready to riff it out right then like yeah how many times do we get asked to do something on the fly and we're not ready yeah not every good rapper can freestyle jocelyn you know right sometimes we gotta write we gotta work in advance but Mm -hmm. he says very naturally throughout the film to her and in this letter and in other contexts away from her but talking about her very poetic things right he he does have that kind of natural poetic tendency and mm-hmm. i think those feelings are sincere and they are there so that's where i don't think that's entirely fair of her but i do think he begins this letter in a really beautiful way and it comes from a sincere sentiment and it is another i think sort of a a hearkening back to the canterbury tales too where everyone is contributing to the story everyone is contributing to the letter and they all have something really beautiful to add to it i think yeah like everyone has a story of a time that they had a broken heart and they all get a chance to contribute i will say that it always makes me, I always forget the line where they're getting ready to sit down and write this and Watt's immediate response is say something about her breasts. And then, and then yeah. Roland says like, yeah, tell her you miss her breasts. Like that's what every girl dreams of hearing, right? <laughs> but I love that, again, playing to what we said earlier about the Kate character and how great she is, is she immediately throws shade of like, her breasts were not that impressive. And I love <laughs> that line as well. <laughs> she's like, listen, if you're going to compliment something, it's not that. It's not that. Right. She, she's not wrong, you know? Fair feedback. Move on. Let's do something better. No, I agree. I think that they all contribute something really beautiful. And yeah, when they make the, the breast comment, he's like, hi. Jeffrey Chaucer's like maybe I think higher than her breasts and he's like what her throat like (laughs) but so it's just full of fun little gems like that but I think it ends on a really positive note and I think it's cool that Chaucer while he is the poetic one both in this film and outside of it um doesn't write the whole letter you know he's just he's kind of just being the scribe really which is I think a fun backseat for him to take in this context and I think it speaks to how regular people are also poetic and also have these beautiful stories to tell. Yeah. 
what else do you want to do you want to touch on here um I do as far talk, as scenes that stand out to you yeah i do want to talk briefly about prince edward and the dynamic that will mm-hmm. and edward get because i think that's yeah. a really another beautiful part of this film and a, and a really cool bromance that begins and how it begins is i think really neat where you know way back when he's first jousting pretty early on he he jousts against Pr- prince edward who we doesn't know at that time is prince edward and he essentially he gets injured and so it turns into a draw and he lets him treat it as a draw rather than defeating him and it's kind of this graceful mercy for edward's character who he's pretending to be colville at this time and and so he they have this mutual respect right away of like i don't need to shame you to win I still get to move forward and I don't have to hurt you or shame you. And that, for example, is something that Adamar would never do. Right. And mm-hmm. then in another joust, they find out it's Edward. They figure out that Colville is Edward. Everyone else withdraws because you, you can't willingly endanger a member of the Royal family, as they say. And, you know, and Will's response is he willingly endangers himself. Like, let's fucking go. He wants to joust. Yeah. This is what, this is his choice. And so instead of withdrawing the way everyone wants him to, including his own team, he, goes up against him and you just see Edward's face light up and he screams Lance in this way where he's just so fucking excited to go and that somebody will, will fight him. Um, I think it's just such a cool moment of them being like, they're the same type of person. Yes. They're they're both pretending that they, to be something they're not. And he says Mm -hmm. that later, what a pair we make, huh? We're both trying to hide and we're both unable to do so. You know, they both want to be somebody that they're not because of their rank, because of their station, they are Mm -hmm. limited in some way and they come together and they become friends and ultimately changes the course of Will's life. Right. He knights him later and I don't care what anybody says. And it's cheesy. I'd tear up in that scene every time. Like he knights him and it's glorious. I think. Yeah. I'm on board with that. I I think that, for as few scenes as Prince Edward has in this film, it's crazy how pivotal he is to how it all mm-hmm. plays out because mm-hmm. we've spoken before about how, you know, Will, no matter how much he believes in his heart that he is a knight, he the papers don't say he is. So yep. no matter how brave and courageous and how he goes into battle and he never drops his head, he has all this going for him, but the, the paperwork won't agree. So yeah. The fact that he earns the respect of this guy who also just wants to compete, then that circles back at the end and gives him his opportunity to to become Sir William, mm-hmm. which is really cool to hear. Yeah, I think that's such a pivotal moment to your point of, you know, he and he says something else to him. He's like, your 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 men love you. And if I knew nothing else about you, that that would be enough. And it inspires him to to knight him. And I love the like. He's like, my historians have found that he is of, you know, an ancient noble line. And don't argue with me, bitch, is basically the translation (laughs) of the rest of that. And he knights him there and it's beautiful and it's romantic (laughs) in this glorious way. And and he is a, again, a pivotal character to your point. But he's there for such a short period of time. You don't expect him to to be so important. And he's who allows you know, Will's father to come see him, you know, at this joust and hear mm-hmm. him as Sir William Thatcher. And that, that is gets me. Oh, oh. And I will. And, and Watt tells him, he's like, your father heard that. Mm-hmm. And that's the oh, clutch my chest. I'm so <laughs> emotional. I'm verklempt. Talk amongst also... yourself. Talk amongst <laughs> yourselves. I also feel kind of bad because I know James Purefoy is, I believe, still acting to this day and has done so much stuff. But I forget that he's in this all the time, and I will always just remember him for the first Resident Evil movie, which was kind of the only good one, some bad CGI aside. And also, to bring things full circle for, for us, uh, fully new metal soundtrack. So there you go. You get your tie-in from the beginning there of the episode. Go. Banger soundtrack as well. You know what's funny? I always think of him from this TV show that I don't think I don't think had a huge, you know, fandom necessarily, but it was a really strong first season. I thought it was called The Following. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was like he plays a really weird, creepy character, but he does it really well. And it's anyway, it's a really interesting series, but it, it didn't last very long. But I always remember him from that. I can just picture him as that. He's also in sex education. Second sex education okay. reference so- on the pod today. Yeah. Lots of Knight's Tale alum in there. Yeah. Or at least two, I guess. Apparently so. But I mean, I think all that to say, 
it's easy for me to say like we love this movie obviously Mm -hmm. we talked about it uh twice now for over an hour but i say we love this movie Uh, maybe that's not a fair assessment so going into our our ratings what would you rate this as we wrap this up I really, really like this movie. I'm not going to go as far as to say I love this movie. I do find it enjoyable, but I think I had just rewatched this already maybe a year or two ago, but I wanted to rewatch it for the pod. And I did find it harder to get through this time, despite it being enjoyable. Um, I think the length it suffers a little bit for me, but I would still say like probably a seven and a half. Like I think it's very, very good, but it's not going to be in my pantheon of great films for me personally. Mm-mm-mm. Okay, well, I have to say again, it's okay to be wrong. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's your time to be the Russian judge. We got to alternate once in a while, apparently. Yeah, so, yeah. but no, I I love this movie. I just think it's a little bit nostalgia, but it's also just this is one of those that is very enjoyable for me to watch. It has the nostalgia factor. It has a killer cast. It's got a killer soundtrack. I'm a sucker for a killer soundtrack, and I just I could watch it over and over and over to be honest. And I think so in, in that sense, it's, it's such a high marker for me. I think it's like a nine, it's like a solid oh. nine out of 10 for me, like an eight and a half or a nine up in there. Cause again, I feel like I could just watch it over and over and so quotable to me. It's so, yeah. It, and I love again, listening to soundtrack. I just, yeah, I'm here for it. Oh, also as the Russian judge, I deducted like half a point why did they make his colors like the ugliest shade of lime green like why did i have to see that on my screen for half what the is movie? with you boys and being colorblind it's not lime green it's just green like i have this conversation with skylar all the time too where he gets colors wrong it's I was not say, lime how many green. boys do you know that are colorblind because <laughs> you've made that seem I like it's <laughs> it is a largely male thing look it up Mo- men are more colorblind okay. than women right. and you, yeah, it's not lime green, but I I like. Well, I'm wearing black right now, and you can't tell, but I have black. I have greenish olive colored pants on. So for me, I love green and and black. So I was here for it. I was like, these are great colors. What are you talking Fair. about? <laughs> uh, okay, well, y'all, if you couldn't tell, we think this is worth a watch. Is the absolutely. point? Absolutely, yes. Um, watch this film if you've never seen it. Absolutely. Why? Why did you sit through this whole episode? I would um, be shocked. But, but maybe. if you haven't watched it recently, give it a rewatch. It's still very, very fun, and I think uh, you know enjoyment will be like I said a couple weeks ago of. If it's between a six and a nine, it is a movie worth watching and rewatching because, you know, maybe your opinion changes over time. And listen, if it's a two, it's probably worth watching because it's got to be like, it's got to be <laughs> like a train wreck, right? But no, I think these, this is a good one. Let's, I definitely recommend you guys watching it. That all being said, we are looking to have you come back next week for The Holdovers, which is another fan jan. Uh, represented film. This is one that was like a holiday film this year. It's pretty new, kind of a newer release. So if you haven't gotten to see see it yet and want to see it before we watch it, it is streaming on Peacock, I believe, right? Yes, it's on Peacock and it is very much worth watching just because uh, it feels like a Christmas film doesn't mean that you can't watch it in January. Yeah. So absolutely, if you are looking for a movie with some that'll tug at your heartstrings a little bit, mm-hmm. I think you should watch this and then listen to next week's episode. Yeah, definitely. And then we'll have a couple more too, but th- but that'll be next week's. We are also going to be just a heads up for February. We will be doing our oscars month so come back around for that be super exciting but for now go have a drink and watch a thing cheers cheers cheers